This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Dr. Sean Hume. Dr. Sean Hume is the research leader at RAND Europe, and I should point out that I'm a member of the Council of Advisors of RAND Europe. Sean, you've been doing some research with your colleagues, uh, mapping the risk of serious and organized crime, infiltrating legitimate businesses. Why have you been undertaking this research? Thanks very much, Paul. I'm really delighted to be here with you today. So that's right. Um, my colleagues and I at RAND Europe uh, were asked at the beginning of last year um, by the Directorate General Home Affairs at the European Commission to carry out this study. Um, it's one of several studies that have been commissioned um, by the European Commission focusing on serious and organised crime in the EU, which I think is really reflective of the sort of strong political appetite at the moment for change in this area and the recognition that serious and organised crime is a really big and increasing threat in, in the EU. And so we did this study at RAND Europe along with um, several partners um, from the Government Transparency Institute, the Centre for the Study of Democracy, Optimity Advisors and, and also Ernest and & Young. And the question that the Commission really wanted us to answer was how much money is being earned by serious and organised crime groups in the EU? Um, and they wanted to know really... Uh, they wanted us to estimate um, revenues across nine priority criminal markets. And so these markets ranged from illicit drugs to trafficking in human beings, migrant smuggling, fraud, environmental crime, illicit firearms, illicit tobacco, cybercrime and organised property crime. So it was quite a big study. And I think it really reflected the recognition that organised crime is really hugely profitable. And we want to understand the extent to which these profits are being earned and how they're being reinvested back into the both legal economy and also the illegal economy to sort of perpetuate that continuity of that, that cycle of crime. Well, by definition, I suppose, uh, this, this all this clandestine activity is difficult to, to map and to measure, surely. So when you undertook the research, did you have a, an, an idea of what methodology you'd uh, adopt to even try and come close to measuring all this? It's a really good good point. It is a really challenging task because, of course, there is no tax administration. Organised crime groups aren't reporting their incomes. Um, and so the methodologies that we use to do these sorts of estimates are indirect. They rely on proxy data sources. And, and these proxy data sources are susceptible to a range of limitations and biases. And so our approach was that we, we really looked at all of the methods that have been used and all of the estimates that have been produced in the European context in the past 10 years. And we sought to identify for each of these nine priority markets what would be the best method and what data was actually available for allowing us to do that. From a mathematical point of view, it's really quite a simple approach. We just really estimate the volume of trade of a particular good or service and we multiply this by the price of that good on the illegal market. But the methods do vary depending on the type of good or commodity being trafficked. So 
perhaps, Paul, I can give you one example so that you sort of understand a little bit more about how and what sort of data might feed into these sorts of estimations. Um, for one of the markets, for example, which is trafficking in human beings, which unfortunately is one of the priority um, criminal markets in the EU, we use data on the number of registered victims in the EU, which is routinely reported on by the European Commission. And so that's the known number of victims in the EU. And we multiply this by data on revenues per sex worker, which is a proxy for revenues for people that are trafficked for sexual exploitation. And so this allowed us to generate a lower boundary estimate. And then we also wanted to recognise that actually a very large proportion of victims of trafficking human beings aren't actually known to authorities because it is a hidden activity. And so we did some further analysis to then estimate that hidden population. Um, and this allowed us to generate an upper boundary estimate. So I guess in sum, it's really challenging. We have to rely on indirect and proxy data sources. And we do that quite differently for every market, depending on what data is available. You said at the beginning that it's a, a growing uh, problem across Europe, but, but when you got into the research and, and the findings started to become more and more apparent, were you even surprised by the extent of, of the size of this phenomenon? Yeah, that's a good question. So there is a substantial evidence base out there on estimations of market size and also revenues generated by organised crime groups. We comprehensively reviewed this evidence base before starting the research and there was one fairly large study that was commissioned previously in 2015 by the European Commission which we were seeking to update and that estimated um, that they gave us a bit of a ballpark figure which was around 110 billion euros is earned by criminal groups in the EU in 2015. So we had a sense that this was a very big problem and that indeed the, the profits are very substantial. That said, um, and I think this isn't particularly surprising given that we know that there is increasing sophistication of organised crime groups in the EU. Uh, there's a lot of polycriminality going on, so organised crime groups operating across multiple markets. We're seeing, you know, the increasing use of new technologies. And so all of these factors pointed to the suggestion that maybe things are getting worse. And indeed, that's what our research found. Was there a, uh, an issue for you and, and for the people sponsoring the commissioning of the research that you've been commissioned in that you're not so much lumping together together, but you are putting together uh, different types of activities, some which are maybe result in loss of tax revenues to national exchequers, like, uh, like illicit cigarettes, for example. Some are just maybe personal consumer convenience, by having credit card theft, uh, for example. But then there's illicit drugs, the impact on society, uh, sexual exploitation, which is more societal issue. So you're kind of putting all these into the same basket, in a sense, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. It's a real challenge. So one of the things we were quite careful to do in our study is make it really clear that what we were doing, would, we're trying to come up with the very best estimates for revenues. And so revenues being money actually earned, as opposed to what is a, a very large and other evidence base around cost. And so when we look, think about things like cost, we think about the ongoing and flow-on effects of criminal activities on things like society, the environmental damages, the, you know, economic impacts. I think we really tried to think about what is the money going into the pockets of organised criminals. Um, and we did our very best to sort of avoid double counting. So, it, you know, but, but unfortunately, that is just the nature of doing these sorts of estimates. Um, there will be some 
conflation and 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 there is really a lot of caution that needs to be borne in mind when you're interpreting such sort of aggregated estimates across very complex markets that use very complex methodologies and I think that's really important um, when you when you're looking at this research and other estimates of this nature. Are, are criminals just getting more savvy uh, in what they're doing? This is a growing and even more have a more alarming phenomenon. Are they just getting more savvy by using technology, by transnational cooperation, uh, just, just being better at what they're doing? Yeah, so we are seeing changes in the way that organised crime groups are operating in the EU. Um, one of the driving factors of that is indeed technology. We're seeing, you know, the increase in cyber crimes, and that's been something that's been reflected on, particularly in relation to COVID, where we've seen organised crime groups exploiting the fact that we're increasingly relying on digital solutions. And so there's been increases in phishing emails and scams. And that is really a challenge for, you know, law enforcement to tackle because it's it's a cross-border, actually it's probably a borderless crime is what we sort of refer to as cybercrime. And so it's actually very, very difficult to trace and, and tackle that as opposed to on the ground traditional markets like drugs, which is still a challenge, but, you know, we have sort of more tried and tested methods. So this kind of ongoing sophistication and emergence of new methods is, is really a big challenge. Um, the other thing that we're sort of seeing a little bit of and, and that our study explored to a small extent was the use of new and non-cash payment methods. So this is sort of not just focusing on the traditional markets where really we saw organised crime groups trading a lot in cash and sort of the typical, you know, manifestations of laundering cash money and that kind of thing, but actually looking at how organised crime groups are using things like cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin, for example, um, in their in their business models and, and using these sort of new currencies, which is, is really an increasing challenge. What we do find is that actually cash still is king in terms of what organised crime groups are actually trading in. But these new threats are something that need to be constantly monitored because organised crime groups are utilising them more and more. And the ways in which law enforcement and other bodies can actually tackle them, it, it, it's evolving and it's an evolving picture, which is why this research is really important to try and give an up-to-date picture of the threat environment that we're currently seeing in the EU. The fact that the European Commission uh, commissioned this research, does that suggest to you that uh, member states themselves are more and more aware that the, it's a cross-EU, cross-continent phenomenon, maybe cross-global uh, phenomenon, frankly, but, and therefore member states have to work more together? Or do you think there's still the, 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 the possibility that member states uh, just want to keep this to themselves? They need to tackle it at national level, but they're not too keen to, to share or even their experiences or even uh, fess up to their experiences to other audiences. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what we've seen since this study has been published in, in actually just the last few weeks in, in, in April 2021, we've seen the launch of the EU organised crime strategy. And this is a new roadmap that really identifies really explicit actions of the European Commission and other EU institutes to tackle this problem. Um, and it has actually looked at our study and it's included our estimates of the size of the of the of the market and also some of the issues around particular markets and 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 laid out strategies. Um, I think one of those is to strengthen sort of cross-border cooperation. And there's a lot of things within that about how that could be done. Um, membership of cross-border networks, for example, encouraging member, uh, member states to to join together to cooperate. Um, 
the suggestion of the introduction of a police cooperation code, which would better facilitate this member state cooperation. So I think that as a strategic document that's just been released and obviously drawn on the findings of our study is a really positive development. And there is a lot of work currently being done to understand the extent to which this will be taken up by member states and what the issues might be, because certainly Europe does present a complex picture with a lot of member states with different legislative backgrounds and bases, um, and that sort of lack of harmonisation can create challenges for, for law enforcement cooperation and tackling the issue of organised crime, which is becoming increasingly cross-border. So where you said, although cash is still very much king, uh, the perpetrators, the criminals, are getting more and more sophisticated in, in, their, in their activities and their operations. So this whole idea of serious organised crime infiltrating companies and public procurement processes, for example. Walk me through some of that, please, Sean. Yeah, absolutely. So that was another part of our study that we, we looked at in conjunction with our partners at the Government Transparency Institute, this issue of infiltration, which is defined as not only sort of investment of financial resources into a legitimate area of the economy, such as a business or a company, um, but it's also the placement potentially of an organised crime figurehead within an organisation. So it might be placing someone in a human resource capacity to sort of guide decision-making or influence decision-making. And so what we looked at in our study was trying to understand whether there are particular red flags that we can identify and that law enforcement and other authorities can use to identify businesses or public procurement contracts that are at risk of this sort of infiltration um, because obviously having these risk assessment tools is really crucial for trying to mitigate the risk and trying to identify where the, where the risks lie. What we found was that contrary to what previous researchers found, actually there is no one single factor that puts a company at an increased risk of infiltration. We see that you need to look at multiple factors at once in order to identify a company. So building a model that would allow you to do that would be would be really important. So some of those things that you might like to include in your model would be things like corruption, how, how a corruption index, high cash intensity of an organisation, volatility of assets, those sorts of things. So our, our study um, helped to contribute to that. And I think it will be an, it, it's sort of a bit of a springboard for future research um, to, to continue to check check these methods and see if they can be applied in practice and in a routine sort of monitoring system way where you could actually be tracking companies on an ongoing basis. Is there maybe a slightly unfair question, but either from your point of view or from the European Commission's point of view, the more that you show that you're on the case, as it were, and you're trying to get to the bottom uh, uh, of the extent of this phenomenon, at these different sectors you've been talking about, then maybe has a kind of perverse effect of sensitising the perpetrators and therefore they become even more uh, clever at what they're doing and try to avoid being detected? It's a good point. I mean, I think uh, we'd love to think that our research was having that big of an impact that organised <laughs> crime groups are actually interested in, um, interested in the findings. I mean, I think um, certainly one of the main things that we do in our study is, is is try and point to not just what the evidence says and what the threat environment currently is, but also carving out really actionable recommendations for various institutes to actually increase the 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 I guess the policy approach but also the operational approach to tackling these issues so I think knowledge is power and certainly 
that's what our studies aim to do is to really canvas the current threat environment and then point to opportunities for, for improvement in policy and approach. And in terms of, of, of next steps, do you think the, you said that the, in the Commission's new um, e-organised crime strategy or your research is referenced, obviously, does an appetite inside the European Commission, therefore by extension across member states, to do, to do more in this area? It's too big to ignore. Concerted action has to be taken. Do you think that's going to happen now? I agree. I think I think it, there is definitely an acknowledgement that organised crime is evolving, growing, and it is a big problem that needs to be addressed, and that's reflected in the fact the strategy's been released. Also, we're doing a number of other studies at RAND, um, European partner with, partners with other organisations, to contribute to this policy um, discourse and, and the work, you know, in this space, and, and that's looking at things like law enforcement cooperation and how we better involve member states, how they can work together to deal with issues around, say, witness protection programs, um, but also the enabling crimes that are really cross-border in their nature. So things like online trade in, in illicit goods and services, document fraud, money laundering, which really permeate borders. And so I think there is certainly an appetite for both increasing knowledge, and that's how RAND Europe is, is helping to contribute, but also engaging member states in that conversation. So um, I would say, yes, absolutely, there is an appetite for change, and, and we can see really tangible things coming out of the work that we've done and, and the work that the European Commission is doing to support that. Do you think that these different uh, policy tools that you highlight in your report that the Commission already has at its disposal uh, are enough to sort of keep up with the pace of the, the growth of uh, illicit uh, and organised crime activities. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the parts of our study that I haven't talked to you about yet is, is around asset recovery. And I think that is a really, really important tool that needs to be further, you know, developed. So asset recovery is is when, you know, authorities uh, actually seek to sort of retrieve, confiscate, seize the the proceeds of crime and the assets that are derived from proceeds of crime from these groups. Um, and it's sort of that follow the money approach. The idea is that if you take away that profit motive, that organised crime groups won't have any incentive to do what they're doing. And it's a really, really important mechanism for trying to stop and, and, and I guess, redirect or minimise organised crime and the impacts it's having on society. And so what our study did is we looked a bit at sort of what we know about um, asset recovery and the extent of asset recovery in the EU. And, and we know from both our research and previous research done by Europol, for example, that there's a very, very small proportion of the actual proceeds of crime that are ultimately confiscated and seized, around 1%, for example, although it is very, very difficult to estimate. And so I think that really points to an area for development, I think, and that, that is acknowledged throughout all of the European Commission strategies and documentation, and it is a real focus going forward about how we can improve this sort of rate of asset seizure and recovery. And um, not only improve practices, but also improve capturing the data and information that will allow us to understand the extent to which assets are being seized and confiscated, which at the moment is not done consistently um, or systematically across the member states. And that's something our research pointed to and, and about ways to potentially improve that. Well, a final question then, Shia. Um, in all the areas that you are researching, the criminal markets, um, was there a particular area that struck you as by, this, by, the, by the sheer size of its uh, activity uh, from your own personal perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So our sort of headline figure, I mentioned earlier that the previous study 
in 2015 estimated that there was around 110 billion euros being earned through organised crime in the EU in 2015. Our study estimated it was around 92 to 188 billion in 2019. So that's a midpoint of 139 billion. Now, I must caveat that with saying that our numbers are not directly comparable to the previous study. We did use slightly different methods and looked at slightly different markets. But if you just take it at face value, there's been a growth in the market. What we did find is that one of the markets actually was a very large proportion of the overall figure, and that was missing trader intra-community fraud. Now, what does that of, mean? What is missing <laughs> trade intra-community? Yeah, so it's, it's a little bit of a complex term, but what it simply means is really when goods and services are traded from one EU member state to another, um, they are, they are VAT exempt, so they're exempt from value-added tax in the member states. And so MTIC fraudsters, I guess, take advantage of this by trading goods from one member state to another without paying this tax. And it's actually, um, our estimates showed that at the lower boundary, this comprised about 77 billion in 2019. So it's actually a very, very large proportion of the overall estimate across the nine markets. Um, and this was a little bit surprising to us. I think um, it's not something that necessarily gets a lot of attention and we don't necessarily hear about it in the same way that we do some of the other markets. Um, previous reported estimates of MTIC fraud tend to be quite a bit lower. Um, and this tends to reflect the difficulty in, in estimating this market. Um, it's very complex. These fraudulent schemes are very, very complex. Um, and they have previous estimates have typically relied on member states sort of estimating this proportion, which, which can be fraught with, with error. Um, and so we, we used an estimate that actually estimated this market from scratch and uses administrative data from Eurostat rather than asking member states to provide an estimate. And so it is, it is a lot higher. And I think that was really surprising to us. And I think it warrants further consideration. I would note that in the new organised crime strategy, there is mention of this type of fraud and and an em emphasis on making sure that there are investigative capabilities to ensure that these MTIC fraud schemes can be thoroughly investigated, which is not an easy task because um, because of the nature in which they which they work and operate. Okay, well we have to leave it there. Sean Hume, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Paul.